How did Jeff Bezos realize you could sell anything on the internet? Why did Bill Gates create Control-Alt-Delete? How did Synchronized Swimming prepare Christine Lagarde for international politics? What made Bob Iger bet big on Marvel? And what inspired Diane von Furstenberg to create the wrap dress? On The David Rubenstein Show, peer-to-peer conversations, I uncover the untold stories of the world's most successful leaders. Listen now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to For the Ages, a history podcast presented by the New York Historical Society and hosted by David Rubenstein. Join us as he deftly explores the rich and complex history of the United States with some of the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers, because history matters. Hello, I'm David Rubenstein, and I'm here in conversation today with Lillian Faderman, who is the author of The Gay Revolution, The Story of the Struggle. Lillian, thank you very much for coming today for a conversation with me about your book. Thank you so much for having me, David. So what prompted you to write this book? This is a fairly definitive history of the gay revolution. I think the immediate prompt is that all of my books come out of a personal desire to know something. The immediate prompt for this is I I came out in the 1950s into the gay girls working class bar culture and things were absolutely awful. We, we were victimized by the police. We were crazies to the mental health profession. We were subversives to the government. I wanted to know how we got from 1956 when I came out as a teenager to what was happening in the Obama administration when one of my great heroes, Frank Kameny, who had been fired from his job because he was a homosexual, this was in the late 1950s, he had been invited to the White House during the Obama administration no less than eight times. How did that happen? And just about the time I was ready to write the book. I was putting together a proposal. Don't ask, don't tell was finally repealed. And it was just, it was such an incredible evolution. And to so many people, it seemed to happen overnight, how we went from being pariahs to to being invited to the White House, to being able to serve openly in the military. And that that's what I asked myself when I was writing the book. What what had to happen before we could achieve the successes that we finally achieved? Now, uh, your book mostly is from the 1940s and 50s forward. And I want to just ask you about this. Uh, Let's say in the beginning of our country in the 1700s or 1800s or so, I assume there were gay and lesbian people. Um, I don't know, you know, that there weren't. But what did they do? Did they just were completely in the closet? They were no uh, ever talking about any way. There was no mention of it. What was what was going on in the 1700s and the 1800s? They wouldn't have called themselves gay or lesbian. Of course, homosexual was a term that was coined in the 19th century. In the course of my research for other books, I discovered a, a very interesting uh, trial of a woman in 1642 who was sentenced to be, quote, severely whipped and fine for being caught on a bed with another woman. 
So, of course, there were women who had relationships with other women. There was evidence of men who were uh, whipped and, in one case, even hanged for uh, having committed sodomy. But it was thought that anyone could commit a, quote, immoral act of that nature. It wasn't an identity. There was no such thing as, as the homosexual, uh, no such thing as, as a person who declared that this is my identity. In ancient Greece and Rome, it is said that it was fairly common to have uh, homosexual relationships or lesbian relationships, and it wasn't looked upon with uh, great uh, horror. Why do you think uh, civilization advanced for several thousand years and it changed, whereas it was once thought to be okay and common? Um, sometime in Europe, it changed. What do you think caused that? Was it religion or what do you think it was? It was the uh, Judeo-Christian religion. It was Leviticus. It was Romans. It was the idea that... that uh, the ancient tribe, beginning with the Jews, wanted to separate themselves from the heathens. And so uh, same-sex relationships, or uh, sodomy as we came to call it, uh, became a, a sin. And I think that Western culture just uh, inherited that notion. And, and homosexuality, not a term until the 19th century, but that that was considered sinful, men who had sex with men and women who had sex with women. And uh, eventually the, the uh, sexologists who emerged in the later 19th century also pathologized homosexuality. So it, it became a sin on the one hand and a pathology on the other hand. So let's go to the 1950s and 1960s. There was an organization in Washington in the Congress called the uh, House Un-American Activities Committee, um, and they kind of interested themselves in homosexual activities, I guess. What was their purpose? Were they trying to uh, get people to admit that they had been homosexual and get them out of government or get them out of other parts of society? Beginning in, in the late 1940s, the State Department and a man by the name of John Purifoy, who was the undersecretary of state decided that this this would be a, a good thing to do uh, on John Purifoy's part. It would uh, really give him a major role to play in government. And so he announced that he had identified 91 homosexuals who were working in the State Department and fired them. And this was the beginning of a witch hunt of homosexuals in in uh, all levels of government, not only the State Department, but the Department of Commerce, homosexuals simply could not work in government. The original idea was that a homosexual could be blackmailed because it was so terrible to be a homosexual that if, if the Russians found out about it, if the Soviets found out about it, they could easily blackmail the person into giving away state secrets. But of course, people were fired who were secretaries, who, who had jobs that had nothing to do with the nation's security. And it ballooned from there. Hundreds of people were fired from federal employment and then state employment and, and then private businesses as well. So in the 1950s and 1960s, did you see any members of Congress standing on the floor of the House or Senate saying, uh, these individuals have certain rights under our Constitution and we shouldn't be doing these things to them? No, because it, it was absolutely not believed that we had rights under the Constitution. It took a long, hard fight 
to convince politicians that, that homosexuals or LGBTQ people, as we would say today, had any rights under the Constitution. Now, the psychiatric community, uh, what did they say about homosexuality? Did they have a position on homosexuality? They did indeed. So uh, in 1952, the first edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders was published. It was sort of the Bible for the psychiatric community, and homosexuality was there as a mental disorder. Frank Hameny realized that, uh, and he, he's one of the great heroes of, of the gay rights movement, realized that homosexuals would never get their rights as long as they were considered mentally disordered. And this became a target for him. Uh, finally, in 1973, because of his activism and the activism of, of other gay and lesbian people, such as Barbara Giddings and Jack Nichols, the uh, American Psychiatric Association decided they would declassify homosexuality from the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Some people would say that the most important date in the gay revolution was in July of 1969, when a number of people from the New York Police Department raided a bar, a gay bar in uh, Greenwich Village called the Stonewall Bar. What happened that night and what was the response that was so unusual uh, compared to what normally happened when police came into gay bars? So the, the, uh, the first response was actually June 28, 1969. The police did what they had done for decades. They decided they would raid the Stonewall Inn. They uh, came in, uh, lights went up, they asked for everyone's ID. Some people, they said, okay, you can go. Those people went out. Usually what would happen is the police raided a gay bar and dismissed someone after looking at his ID or her ID. That person would be so delighted that they would just run off. But this time they waited outside. They waited for their friends and a crowd began to congregate. It was Greenwich Village after all, where people walk and they saw a crowd congregating and the crowd got bigger and bigger. Finally, the police took out a, a very butch lesbian, put her in the police car. The other door of the police car was open. She got out the other door, they threw her back in. She got out the other door, they threw her in again. <laughs> she escaped once more. And she said to the crowd, why don't you guys do something? And somebody threw a rock. And that was the beginning of the riots that lasted for four nights. It, it happened at the end of the 1960s. June 1969, after a whole decade of, of protests of people for their rights, protests of people against the wrongs that the government had done. This was the decade of the protests against the Vietnam War, for instance, it was the decade of, uh, of black power and, and protests for black civil rights. It was the decade when um, feminists were uh, doing zaps on the um, uh, American beauty pageant, for instance. Finally, I, I think gay people realized that they had to send a message that they weren't putting up with this abuse anymore. And I think that's why the Stonewall riots happened on that particular night. Now, in the late 1970s, I worked in the White House for President Carter. 
and an assistant to President Carter, Midge Costanza, invited on a Saturday, I believe it was, a number of uh, gays to come to the White House for a meeting. Uh, why did that cause such a big controversy? Midge Costanza was an aide, as you know, to President Carter, and she really had the job of, of being uh, his windows to the world. And she would very often meet with uh, various groups, such as veterans groups or uh, women's groups. She thought it was perfectly plausible that she would invite uh, 14 lesbian and gay leaders to the White House. President Carter conveniently was at Camp David. He was not present. Um, they all uh, were to talk about various areas of government where government was uh, discriminatory against lesbians and gays. Um, nothing much came out of that meeting, I think, except that it was a huge morale boost to the lesbian and gay community. But of course, President Carter suffered a lot of flack from that meeting. So President Carter lost his effort for re-election, and he was succeeded by Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan, uh, as president, uh, saw that a number of men who were gay were dying of a disease that later became known as AIDS. Uh, the gay community didn't know initially that it was a, quote, gay-related uh, disease. What was the impact of AIDS in the gay community initially, and why was Ronald Reagan unwilling to ever utter the word AIDS, at least for a number of years? Impact was, was huge. Ultimately, uh, over 300,000 people died before protease inhibitors were distributed to, to stop the deaths from AIDS. The religious right um, was delighted that this was happening. People like Pat Buchanan, for instance, wrote numerous editorials about this is God's judgment on the uh, gay community, on the homosexual community, before they were uh, spreading their moral disease, and now they're spreading their physical disease to innocent people. He wanted uh, people to be quarantined or homosexuals to be tattooed. Um, the, the religious right really victimized the gay community and the government did absolutely nothing. Larry Speaks was uh, Ronald Reagan's uh, press secretary. Uh, he made a joke of AIDS. He was asked about it by a reporter and he said, I don't have it, do you? Homosexuals get it. And he simply would not take the question seriously. And Reagan never mentioned AIDS for years into his presidency, even when his good friend, Rock Hudson, the movie star, died of AIDS, he would not acknowledge that that's what killed his buddy. Reagan finally mentioned AIDS in 1987. And because we had no leadership from the White House, people in Congress were permitted to go ahead with their prejudices. And so they, uh, they, they gave some funding totally inadequate to, uh, to research. Uh, people like Jesse Helms said that the only uh, funding should go uh, to uh, for abstinence education rather than research to figure out how to get rid of this disease. It was a huge tragedy and I, I think that Reagan was in good part responsible for the fact that, that AIDS was not stemmed until the 1990s. 
A subsequent president, Bill Clinton, in the beginning of his administration, uh, was under some pressure to allow gays to serve in the military, uh, but the military resisted that. What was the compromise that, that was developed? Well, Clinton was very much beloved by the lesbian and gay community when he was running for office. And he actually made some promises. And one promise was that if he were elected president, he would make sure that gays and lesbians could serve openly in the military. And I, I think it was a sincere promise. I think he really had good intentions. It was one of the first things he tried to do when he took office. And he learned very quickly that there was a lot of blowback from the military. And so don't ask, don't tell was supposed to be a compromise. If you were gay and lesbian, you could serve in the military as long as you didn't talk about it. But it didn't work because eventually people were outed. Uh, they, they suffered almost as much as they had before there was a policy when there were witch hunts in the military for homosexuals. And I, I think it was as tragic for gays and lesbians in the military as it had been before, don't ask, don't tell. There was also an effort uh, by Congress in those days to pass a bill called the Defense of Marriage Act, which was a bill that uh, basically said that states couldn't allow uh, homosexuals or, or lesbians to marry. Um, and uh, President Clinton, under a lot of pressure, signed that legislation. Uh, what did you think about the impact of that legislation on the country at that time? Well, what, what had happened is that in Hawaii, three same-sex couples in 1991 uh, made an issue of it. They wanted to get married, and it finally went to the Hawaiian courts in 93. By 1996, it looked as though the state Supreme Court of Hawaii was going to approve same-sex marriage. Immediately, the, the various other states reacted by passing their own State Defense of Marriage Act. There was pressure on Clinton in 1996 to sign a federal Defense of Marriage Act. He was up for re-election and he threw us under the bus. As, as sympathetic as I know he was to the gay community, he, he appointed many lesbians and gays to various offices in his administration, but he also wanted to get reelected. Eventually, the gay community began to uh, litigate uh, that issue, among other issues, and a number of important issues went to the United States Supreme Court. And the United States Supreme Court, in opinions authored by Justice Kennedy, uh, basically said it was illegal to deny gays certain rights, and it was illegal to deny gays the right to get married. And so um, how, did, how did that impact the gay community? Were people surprised that a somebody appointed by Ronald Reagan would write such important decisions in, uh, for the future of the gay and lesbian community. Beginning in the 1990s with Romer v. Evans, which was uh, a uh, Colorado law that came to the Supreme Court that said that uh, gay people could not petition their government for equal rights. Cities and counties in Colorado could not pass laws that the state would not pass. They couldn't pass, quote, special laws for homosexuals. Homosexuals challenged that. It went all the way to the Supreme Court. And Justice Kennedy 
wrote the majority opinion saying that you could not make one class of citizens a stranger to the law. And he, uh, he said that Amendment 2 was unconstitutional. And so Colorado could not say that cities and counties in Colorado could not give gay people equal rights. And then um, in uh, 2003, Justice Kennedy wrote another very surprising uh, majority opinion, and that was on Lawrence v. Texas, and that uh, repealed all of these sodomy laws. There were only about 13 states that still had sodomy laws by that time, but because of uh, the Supreme Court, um, uh, sodomy, so-called sodomy, was no longer illegal. Uh, it was one's constitutional right to privacy. And sodomy, I should say, did not refer to just one specific act. In some states, it referred to any act that was outside of the Marriage Act. And so lesbians, too, were often penalized and punished under the sodomy law. And then uh, Justice Kennedy wrote the opinion on uh, the Edie Windsor case. Uh, at that time, there were several states that already uh, permitted same-sex marriage, including New York, but the federal government would not recognize same-sex marriage. And so when Edie Windsor's partner died, uh, Edie Windsor was supposed to pay the federal government an inheritance tax that amounted to two-thirds of a million dollars if she had been heterosexual and married, she wouldn't have had to pay that tax. So that went to the Supreme Court. And again, Justice Kennedy wrote the wonderful majority opinion saying that uh, the Defense of Marriage Act in that case was illegal and Edie Windsor did not have to pay two thirds of a million dollars. And finally, he uh, wrote the majority of opinion in Obergefell v. Hodges, which said that it was unconstitutional to deny same-sex couples the right to marry, and that was in 2015. Now, the uh, gay and lesbian community uh, has obviously received a lot of um, uh, support from the Supreme Court in recent cases, as you've mentioned. Uh, how has the uh, Congress done? Has the Congress been willing to make changes in existing laws like the 64 Civil Rights Act and so forth to accommodate your issues? Congress has not yet been as sympathetic, but what happened more recently, and that is with the Supreme Court, which was just such a, a wonderful welcome surprise, is that the court declared that um, uh, LGBTQ people uh, really fit under the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Uh, it it uh, banned discrimination on the basis of sex, and that should apply to LGBTQ people. So there were three cases before the Supreme Court, two cases of gay men and one of a transgender woman. And astonishingly and wonderfully, um, uh, John Roberts and Neil Gorsuch sided with the liberal justices, and uh, Neil Gorsuch wrote the majority opinion there. So the Supreme Court in some ways has been truly wonderful. So as you look back on the last, let's say, since the 1950s, the last 70 years or so, who would you say are the one or two most important people in the gay revolution in terms of winning the rights for gays and lesbians? I, I think that my great hero is Frank Kameny because he saw it all. He understood what needed to be done. He understood that we had to 
come out. He understood that the American Psychiatric Association had to stop calling us uh, mentally ill. And I think he began those early battles that, that finally we won. And so I, I, I think that he had such vision. So he, he's, for me, the, uh, the grandfather of gay rights. I think another person who was very important in, in the movement, someone who I wrote a biography about, in fact, is Harvey Milk. Now, Harvey Milk had huge charisma. Uh, he, he was a wonderful speaker, had terrific ideas. He wasn't in office very long, but he played a role that was tragic and yet probably very important for a movement. He became our martyr. He became our instance of this is what homophobes do to, to gay people, and this is huge injustice. And I think that the straight world understood our grief because he was martyred. Well, for, for those who may not know, Harvey Milk was elected to be a supervisor in San Francisco, and he was assassinated um, while in his offices, um, and um, ultimately the killer uh, went to jail, though he, I think, later committed suicide. He was given a wrist slap of something like eight years, and he got three years off for good behavior. It was a fellow supervisor who had made it clear all along that he hated the gay community and, and hated Harvey Milk, and it was certainly a homophobic act. Again, if you look back on the uh, gay revolution, what would you say is the one or two most important events? I think Stonewall was very important, not because of the event itself, which could easily have gotten lost to history, but because of what happened. Immediately, young people realized they had to organize, and they had to organize militantly. So there had been these organizations in the 1950s, like Mattachine and Daughters of Belitis, but they were not militant organizations. They weren't dramatic organizations. Frank Kameny had these, these very important pickets in front of the White House and the State Department, but it didn't attract many people. The Gay Liberation Front that emerged out of Stonewall decided that we would do marches, pride parades that attracted in the beginning thousands of people and then eventually hundreds of thousands of people. And then marches on Washington that attracted uh, almost a million people at one of the marches in, in 1993. So I, I think that, that Stonewall was a huge trigger in, in bringing to young people's attention that there is a cause to fight for here. Well, I want to thank you for a very interesting conversation. We've been in conversation with Lillian Federman about her book, The Gay Revolution. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you, David. It was an honor. On behalf of the New York Historical Society, thank you for joining us for another episode of For the Ages, a history podcast hosted by David Rubenstein. We hope you enjoyed it and come back for more. Thanks for your support. You can share your thoughts at public.programs at nyhistory.org.